I want you to pay particular attention to tonight's Bible study. I feel that the study in 1 Corinthians has been very profitable for us. And uh, tonight's study is not an easy one. It's one that is not a particular um, first choice topic that is preached on or taught. But it's one that we need. And I pray that this evening for every single person, every married person, everyone, frankly, that you'll let God speak to your heart tonight. And I pray you not put any resistance up. And I pray that you take very seriously God's word this evening. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 20. I want you to read out loud at home where you're at. And we find in verse 9, Paul starts off again. It's one of six times in this chapter. Know you not? In other words, he's taught it before. This is nothing new that I've taught you. Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. That's an important phrase there. Neither fornicators nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Verse 11 is one of the great, greatest explanations of the plan of salvation, what God does in your life. Now Paul goes from there, notice verses 12 to 20. And we're starting to get in this area that is sometimes described as Christian liberty, Christian freedom. And Paul gives a very, very important doctrinal explanation against um, turning the grace of God into licentiousness or lasciviousness, sometimes known as antinomianism. The abuse of grace. And he said in verse 12, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. That's important. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body, the Greek word is soma. Paul calls it later on our tabernacle or our tent. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord. 
and the Lord for the body. And God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know you not, don't you know, that your bodies are the members of Christ? In other words, they're his limbs. They're extensions of the body. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know you not? Don't you know? That he which is made, that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. Now he's quoting from Genesis 2.24 and there again from Ephesians chapter 5 and, and Matthew chapter 19. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know you not? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? which you have of God, and you're not your own. If you're bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. In verse 11, he talks about being saved. If you're, if you're glad you're saved tonight, you ought to say amen. But in verses 12 to 20, he talks about people that were freed and saved that became enslaved to things that they were saved out of. And the question tonight is, saved or slave? Are you saved or are you a slave? Father, bless your word tonight. Sanctify us through thy truth. Thy word is truth. When we're done tonight, I pray it can be said, we are clean through the word which you've spoken to us. Cleanse our congregation tonight from all filthiness to flesh and superfluity of naughtiness, and that with meekness we may receive the engrafted word which is able to save souls. Father, be glorified in every body and in every spirit which are God's. Well, thank you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated at home. We find that the word body is used seven times in chapter 6. It's found 152 times in the Bible. 113 of those times is in the New Testament. 33 times in 1 Corinthians, the most predominant usage of all the New Testament books. The body can refer to this actual physical body, or it's used as a type in speaking about the church. We find that the types of the bride, the building, the body is used to describe the church. And Paul's concerned about the body tonight. 
Now, Paul has dealt with some very sensitive topics in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 5, he had to deal very, uh, with the painful removal from church membership of a sinning church member who was living in gross immorality. And specifically, he names the sin, the sin of incest. He proceeded in chapter 6 to address lawsuits among believers. In our last study, leading into that, he talked about the personal separation believers must have from Christians who practice um, behavior that is sinful. And we come back to chapter 6, verses 9 to 20, and Paul deals with another sensitive issue. In fact, it's so sensitive, Paul had to deal with it in several other letters. It's so sensitive that a church pastor, a church family, would be naive and negligent not to address it. It's prevalent, what we're going to look at tonight is prevalent in churches because it's prevalent in society. And Paul deals with the Christian and the church member in immoral behavior. As we get into the subject tonight, my heart's pretty heavy for our church. My heart is pretty heavy for you. Because my prayer this evening, going into the service, is that it would not be said of one member, one attendee of Heritage Baptist Church. My prayer tonight is for the personal purity of our members. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4.2, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification. It's pretty uncomfortable to stand up here right now and to preach on a topic that might be present in our midst. I pray it's not. And the thing I found is that there's extremes of it. There's the extreme of somebody who is a who practice this type of behavior before they got saved and struggles to do right. I think of a precious, precious, two precious church members who got saved out of those kind of lifestyles. One came, both came to me separate occasions. You wouldn't know who they are, so don't even try guessing. Both separately praying, saying, preacher, pray with me. I've done some terrible sins in my life, awful sins. I need deliverance. And even in some cases, I believe, were addictive in their behavior. And I'm going to be honest with you, addictive in behavior basically means you're demonically obsessed at a minimum, most likely demonically possessed. You're bothered by demons if you're addicted to something. But the other extreme could be someone who knows all the Bible lingo, 
and the Christian terminology and is one of us who even has attained a position of influence. I don't even want to use the term leadership, but of influence. And has it very well hidden in terms of what they're doing. It might be your best friend. It might be somebody who's told you that they're clean, but they may not be clean. And I'm fearful tonight as I go through this. That I'm praying that we see some principles here tonight that will get us out of this mess. I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 9 to 10, Paul addressing the eternally rejected. He starts off by saying, don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know we shall judge angels? Don't you know we shall judge the world? And he says in verse 9, don't you know, notice the word, the unrighteous, those who are unjust, because the word is used interchangeably, unjust, unrighteous, those who have broken God's law, those who have gone away from God, those who fit the description of Romans 3.10, they're, they're not righteous. Romans 3.23, they've fallen short of the glory of God. Don't you know that the unrighteous, and I'm going to say for tonight, the unsaved, shall not, you want to circle the word, inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a lot of times we get into this debate and question, did the person really get saved? If they got saved and they go back to a certain lifestyle, are they saved? And I've heard debates for 40-something years among Christians. Verse 9 answers that question. Don't you know that an unsaved, unrepentant individual will not inherit the kingdom of God. The word inherit is very specific. You cannot be an heir unless you're in the family. You have to be in the family. There has to be a will and a testator who has willed you an inheritance. You cannot inherit something that is not given to you that you did not meet the guidelines. And the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 17, that when you get saved, you're an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. We are sons of God. And I love telling people when I talk about salvation, sometimes even a stronger phrase than saying you're Christian is the fact that you are a son of God. I still think of several years ago, Wendy Jung's brother-in-law, Eugene Jung, who one year previous to his passing, his, friend, his, his brother, my good friend, Brother Ken Jung, went home to be the Lord. Eugene was not interested in talking with me at all, but somehow along the way, Eugene got very sick and ill, and he had a rough day, and it was a Sunday night. I got a call from Wendy. She said, Pastor... By the way, I'm just thankful for the Jung family, all the Jung family members and the Huey family members. They've been such a blessing to me. 
She said it late at night. She said, told me about Eugene, and she said, would you go visit him? I said, Wendy, you don't even have to ask. I'll be there tomorrow. And I remember going to ICU at Stanford. The family members were waiting for me. I didn't specify a time I would arrive. They waited, thought, well, maybe he's going to be a little later. They went downstairs to have lunch. That was providential. I got in. Eugene had his face turned towards the side. I called his name out. He recognized my voice. He said, Pastor Fong, thank you for coming. And if I had to relive a moment, there are several moments in my life I would certainly would love to relive. This was one of them. How God gave me 30 to 40 minutes of precious time of sharing the precious gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing with Eugene how to get saved and how and he at the 11th hour, literally at the 11th hour, because he passed away, let me think, he passed away 14 hours after that. He called on the name of the Lord to save him. And Eugene said, I told him, I said, Eugene, you're now a son of God. You have the gift of eternal life. Heaven's your home. And this is what he said. I'll never forget this. You mean I'm a son of God? And everybody that came to the room, he shared his testimony. I'm going to heaven. I'm a son of God. I'm saved. I mean, he just repeatedly told his wife that. He told his son that. And later on, a couple hours later, Wendy came. Wendy, I'm going to heaven. I'm a son of God. He was happy as a son of God. Listen, to as many as received him, Jesus Christ, to them gave he power to become the son of God. Thank God tonight, if you're saved, you're a son of God. And so Paul writes here, don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? You cannot go to heaven if you're not saved. So Paul lists 10 predominant sins in Corinthian society. I need to move quickly. And this gets rough. And I've got to move through this quickly tonight. I've got more to say about some of this later on. But he talked about fornicators. Now he talked about this because, because this is the kind of stuff that was going on in Corinthian society. He led people to Christ that were in these sins. The word for fornicators is an all-encompassing word, but literally in its primary meaning means a male prostitute. And parents, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get overly descriptive, but if you feel you want to protect your children's ears, I probably would cover their ears up on some of this tonight. We get our word pornography from this word. It is sometimes translated whoremongers. Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But adulterers and whoremongers, fornicators, God will judge. Fornication encompasses a wide range of everything that's bad in that realm. And you might say it was used, this word meant was used because everybody did it. He talks about idolaters 
And we're so used to idolatry because we live in a very pagan world, we have forgotten how much God hates idolatry. I mean, look, the first two, three commandments are about having no other gods before our God. And listen, Christian friend, you ought not to get used to idolatry. It ought to bother you. You ought to hate idolatry like hate any other sin. But he talks about the worshipers of false gods, pagan worship, the practice of eating at events where food was offered to idols. I mean, you need to, we need to be so conscientious of idolatrous practices. And even to the point where people, as they bowed, they weren't even bowing to the God. They were bowing to the symbol of the God. He talks about adulterers, married individuals having intimate relations with someone who is not their spouse. Effeminate, the word malakas. A man, basically, who gave up his manhood for the luxuries of sensual pleasure. It literally is defined as a man who subjects his body to unnatural lewdness. You can figure that one out. And then he gets really strong. The next phrase is one Greek word. Abusers of themselves and mankind. Arsenokoetes. Literally means, translated, a male bed. It's talking about sodomy, homosexual behavior. This type of behavior was rampant in Corinth and Roman Empire. 14 out of the first 15 Roman emperors practiced this unnatural vice. When Nero was emperor, he took a young boy named Sporus, had him castrated, had a full merit ceremony, took him home to his palace and made him his wife. Pretty sick. With an incredible viciousness, he also married a man named Pythagoras. And you look at the name Pythagoras. He called him his husband. When Nero was eliminated as, as emperor, Otho came along, assumed the throne. The first thing he did was he took possession of Sporhus. Paul continues on. Verse 10, he talks about thieves, stealers. Thieves were rampant. You need, next time you see the word thief uh, in the Bible, don't run past it. Thieves operated at night. Thieves were fast. They, did, they, they went to the bathhouses of Rome, and people who went there to take baths, they had to be very careful because the thieves came and stole their clothing. Public gymnasiums were places where people got their clothing stolen. They came in the night. People had to be very protective of thieves coming at night. He talks about the covetous. This is talking about someone extremely greedy and wanting what belonged to others. There's so much I can say about covetousness, but I just say tonight, the Tenth Commandment speaks against covetousness, and you ought to look that up. I don't know the last time you read the Tenth Commandment. It might do you good to read it tonight. You're in business and in finance, you be, be careful of covetousness. Drunkards, people in Corinthian society were constantly drunk. The sickness to it was that children got drunk. 
revilers. The word reviler in the Old Testament spoke about a brawling woman in a white house. We saw the word reviler or railer mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5.11. This is speaking about someone whose speech pattern is very, very destructive, condemning, critical, and abusive. And if you have a critical spirit all the time, I'm going to tell you tonight, you're the one that's got an abusive spirit. That's what the Bible says. You, you get, you, you're angry with that tonight? Talk to God about it. Extortioners. Extortioner was a robber, a predator. The Greeks defined as a spirit which is always reaching after more and more and grabbing that which it has no right to. Taking advantage of other people. Now Paul talked about these sins as he talked about the unrighteous because these were people, these were sins, I should say, that held people in bondage. Someone who got saved out of that supposedly made a profession of faith. Let me back up. Someone who made a profession of faith but continued to be blatantly doing these sins. The question of the church at Corinth is why Paul wrote it. Does that person really saved? And Paul is saying, don't you know? The unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. He said, man, if this, this person has continued down that pathway, there was never any repentance. In Acts 15, 29, Paul had to tell the Gentile believers constantly to abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood, from being strangled, and from fornication. He had to constantly remind them. Now, there's a difference from somebody who's gotten saved and is repented from that, but they're still struggling with these, un, these desires and have, they need, need help with that versus someone who makes a profession and just keeps on going on as if there's nothing wrong with it. Romans 28 tells us something interesting if you'll look at it. Romans 21.8 says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know what Paul's saying? Don't you know? If you're really saved, you've repented of your sins. If you're really saved, you don't have a desire to go back in that lifestyle. If you're really saved, you're seeking to be in the house of God. If you're really saved, you really want to be with God's people. If you're really saved, you really want to go to, hey, there's something wrong. If a person really gets saved, they should want to be in church. They should want to read their Bible. There's a difference from being religious and being regenerated. And Paul said, I taught you before. Make no mistake about it. A sinner must repent and turn from his wicked way. And then there's some on the self-righteous side that says, well, I must be okay. My sin wasn't mentioned there. No, but if you feel that way, there's the sin of self-righteousness. Let me remind you this evening, we can be so self-righteous and so pharisaical, we can look, look with our noses up at someone else and say, well, that's not me. We can be like the Pharisee smote, his, smote himself, who looked up to heaven and says, Lord, thank you, I'm not like this publican. But I'm going to tell you, one sin will keep you out of heaven. One sin breaks the laws of God. 
One sin makes you guilty before God. One sin can send you to hell. Listen, it doesn't matter if you didn't do those sins. If you just have one sin, that one sin is self-righteousness, which we all have. Listen, that one sin will keep you out of heaven. I'm just saying tonight, if you're not saved tonight, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ and get saved tonight. Paul wants to make very clear they're the eternally rejected. But number two, Paul wants to make very clear the essence of regeneration. Now, Paul talks about these things, and I think those Corinthian believers, as he's writing this, as he's written, they're reading it, there are some of them who are really saved are thinking, oh, man, that, that's what I got saved out of. And Paul, vividly in his mind, he knew among those believers who was doing what. And he's rejoicing in God that some of them had gotten saved, and they, got, they were repentant, and they turned from their wicked ways. And he says in verse 11, this is such wonderful wording here, he says, and such were some of you. Some of you were covetous. Some of you were thieves. Some of you were fornicators. Some of you were effeminate. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were living in adultery. Some of you were revilers. Some of you were like that. Such, he says, such were some of you. But, you got saved out of that sinful lifestyle. You didn't get reformed. You got regenerated. Amen. And he says, he says, he talks about salvation being in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. Listen, a sinner must come through the name of Jesus Christ and call on him to save him from his sins. You're saved through the name of Christ. You're saved through the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us here in verse 11, not only in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but by the Spirit of our God. The whole matter of salvation is all of God. Listen, Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done. Listen, your good works will not save you. But according to His, God is God's mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration. That re the word regeneration is the same word where we get our phrase born again from. The washing, the cleansing. And he says the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Hey, salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit of God. He not only convicts of sin, but he converts us. The soul winner doesn't do any converting. If you have some idea you let some, that you did the saving, listen, you're wrong. You never did the saving. If you think you saved somebody, listen, that person never got saved. They got saved because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, and such were some of you. He says, number one, but you're washed. I'm glad tonight we're washed. I'm glad tonight we're not washing borax, amen? I'm glad tonight we're not washing hydrogen peroxide, amen? I'm very thankful tonight we're not wa washing Clorox bleach, amen? No, we are washing the blood of Jesus Christ. His blood is efficacious. His blood is pure. His blood is personal. His blood is powerful. His blood is precious. Praise God, his blood is purifying. That's the only essence that can wash away your sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 1 John 1, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us, listen to this, from all sin. Revelation 1.5, from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Listen, it wasn't by the blood of bulls and goats and lambs. We were washed in the blood of the precious Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Second, we've been sanctified. 
read through first, uh, Romans chapter 6. Sanctified means we've been made sacred. We are set apart for God and to God. We're free from the guilt of sin. It means we have yielded our members to Christ. Paul talked about that, I think, in Romans 6, 11. And, make, and we, it, we make it very clear that we are living for the glory of God and not in our past sin. That's sanctification. There's something to be said that when you get saved to take that next step of following the Lord in obedience to scriptural baptism. Now, baptism doesn't save you. In fact, even in the Chinese language, we, we are very careful to use a word that specifically mentions baptism going underwater. Baptism is, you don't use the word that talks about washing away. Baptism doesn't wash away your sins. Please get that clear tonight. Baptism does not wash away your sins. Baptism symbolically represents your salvation. It's a picture that you identify with Jesus Christ and his death, his burial, and resurrection. And in your obedience, you need to follow the Lord of Scripture baptism by saying, I identify with Jesus Christ. I represent by this testimony that I'm saved. I've repented of my sins. I've been, my sins are washed under his blood and that I'm a saved individual. Listen, from there, you ought to live the sanctified life. You ought to live the life where your, your members are yielded to God. You ought to live the life realize that this vessel ought to be a vessel under the holiness before God. Thirdly, we've been justified. And Paul is emphasizing here the essence of salvation. We're washed, we're sanctified, we're justified. The word justified means we are free from, we're free from the penalty of sin. God looks at us just as if we never sinned. He sets us apart. We, our sins have been expunged. We've been exonerated, but we've also been expunged of our sin. Listen, salvation is a work of God. Salvation is all of grace and nothing of us. Salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ redeeming a sinner out of the slave market of sin. Listen, salvation, he said here, and such were some of you, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. We're saying save, save tonight. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Salvation brings me into God's family. Salvation puts me into his kingdom. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Now we look at the essential responsibility. We saw the eternally rejected, the essence of regeneration, but now we see the essential responsibility. This was hard for Paul. Verses 9 to 20, he's writing to Christians that he had close fellowship with, most of which got led to Christ through the preaching of the Word of God through Paul. Paul discipled them. God wanted him to stay 18 months down there, I think, for many reasons, but one of that which is because these people got saved out of rough backgrounds. I don't get the idea that this was necessarily a, a, uh, a very rich church, but it was a good giving church. And I believe this church... They were probably not that way before they got saved. But these people got saved out of rough backgrounds. You need to understand something, church, tonight. 
We are not doing our job if people are not getting saved out of rough backgrounds. And I get a little weary sometimes when some of us get around being around middle-class Christianity and you get a little fearful of looking down on someone who really needs to get saved. The gospel goes to the guttermost and to the uttermost. And Paul had been away now, and these friends were living in a society where the pressures were great. And frankly, there was immorality because he started off with those sins. There was immoral behavior everywhere. Hey, you're in college, sector college. Those frat houses, college students live in immoral behavior. You go to those college clinics on campus. They're dispensing and advising because of a lot of immoral behavior. And some of you have friends on that, on that campus that do that kind of stuff. Then you graduate from there, you go into the professional world. People hang out. People are partying. Going out to eat. Hanging out at bars. Doing social drinking. Getting too close to their co-workers. And I'm going to tell you right now, I say this, I've said this for years. I don't know why so many Christians think their co-workers are their friends. Your co-worker, and most likely, especially for the opposite sex, is out to take advantage of you. Oh, they're so nice. Yeah, because they want something from you. And these Corinthian believers, were under a lot of pressure to conform. Corinthian philosophy was you live to do whatever made you feel good. That's right here. It was Epicurean philosophy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Let me do what makes me happy. And so, people live, listen to me tonight, they live for the pleasure of their bodily desires. And these Corinthian believers who were saved, sadly, regressed and backslid back into some of their past sins. They were saved. They still went to church faithfully. I think that's one of the reasons why we get to 1 Corinthians 5. They turned their head the other way about the sinning brother because they were living in sin themselves. Corinthian believers had become slaves again to their former lusts. And so notice as we look at the essential responsibility, 
Paul is writing lovingly but sternly and exhorting them to live lives that are holy and pure from unrestrained desires. To live holy and pure from unrestrained desires. Notice in verses 12 to 16 the principle behind this essential responsibility. Now in verses 12 to 16 and verse 12 especially, Paul counters and deals with two prevailing arguments, two prevailing lifestyle philosophies that Corinthians live by. You better listen tonight because it's similar today. The first one in verse 12 was, all things are lawful for me. Now all things were lawful for me basically was saying, hey, all things are permissible. It's okay. I can do whatever I please. But the believers, listen to me tonight, the believers took this phrase and they twisted it into what I call this today the hyper grace heresy. And you listen to me tonight, hyper-grace is a heresy. Antinomianism. I'm saved, and I'm going to heaven, so the grace of God, which saved me, lets me do whatever I want. No, it does not. For the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, godly, and righteously in this present world. That is the grace of God. Listen, the Bible speaks about apostasy. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. So they took this Corinthian philosophy, all things are lawful for me. All things are permissible. I'm saved by grace. So grace allows me to do whatever I want. But Paul counters it and says, but all things are not expedient. He says, grace does not give you the permission to do that. You're not to twist the grace of God to fit your desires. In fact, Paul addressed that in Romans 5.12. He says, we have been called to liberty, only use not your liberty for an occasion to the flesh. That's pretty, pretty clear. When he said all things, but, but he said, when he said all things are not expedient, he said all things are not profitable. All things are not allowable. Then he goes on by saying, all things are lawful for me, but he brings himself to the picture. I will not be brought under the power of any. You know, he made a great statement there. That'll help you and me in our Christian, in our, our walk with God. And our battle against our inner desires. Our battle against lust. A battle against drunkenness. And gluttony. And so-called addictive behavior. All things are lawful. But I will not be brought under the power of any. In other words, he said here, I will not allow myself to be a slave to my desires. 
That's why fasting is important in battling lust. In battling desires that are out of control. In dealing with covetousness and a critical spirit and railing and reviling. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. Paul makes another statement. He said in verse 13, meats for the belly, belly for the meats. Well, we all know that. Wheat meat to satisfy our hunger. And so my stomach was made for a lot of meat. What's wrong with eating? Nothing. But the Corinthian philosophy was you should live to satisfy your appetites and desires. They were using these phrases, all things are lawful to me, meats for the belly and the belly for meats, to justify living in immorality. That's just like somebody says, well, I'm doing it because there's something wrong with my spouse. No, there's something wrong with your heart. And I didn't get into that. But if you look at verse 9, some of those phrases, those words, you weren't born that way. Your sinful proclivities came into place. There's an English word that defines that kind of behavior. That's profligate behavior. So Paul goes on and he makes a great statement in verse 13. He now brings them to the place of the elevation of the body. Now, you want to write this down because this is in verse 20. The body's important. When God saved you, he saved all of you. Yes, he did. Paul prayed a prayer for the believers at Thessalonica. He says, now the God of peace sanctify you, he said, spirit, soul, and body, that you may be blameless. You don't segregate the body from your spirit and soul in this life. Your body is important. God saved all of you. The body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body. When you got saved, you got saved for a grand, wonderful, divine purpose. Nobody has crafted a greater idea and scheme for your life than God. You know what we call that? The will of God for your life and mine. And the will of God for your life in mind, if you read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, is that you're to take your body and set it apart for the will of God. Hey, listen, we read Romans chapter 12, and we realize that the first thing you're supposed to do is you understand what the sanctified life is all about, is to present your body a living sacrifice to God. And listen, you Christian parents, if you've got some kind of difficulty with that, your children will never live in victory before God. The body is the means by which we serve God. And when we talk about the body, we don't segregate the spirit from the body. 
The two go together. We serve God with a good spirit. We serve God with a body. And listen tonight, if you don't have a good spirit about serving God, you should stop serving. It's a joy to serve Jesus. There's a day coming very soon we're going to reassemble. There will be a soft approach to reassembly. I hope you have a good spirit about coming. I hope that you don't get into this rationalization. Let me just tell you something real, real quick there. We need as a church to get away from this tentacle analysis nonsense where we overanalyze everything to the place. We analyze and analyze and analyze to the place we think we're wiser than God. We need to crucify that old wisdom, the tentacle analysis, and get ourselves to having a humble submission before God. So Paul talks about the body. And he talks about the importance of the body. When you get here to the church, when you can we come back and have church, listen, you come with all of yourself. Don't just be your body, come here body spirit. But he talks about the body. He said the body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. That's important. Listen, you single people who long to get married and prepare yourself, you need to understand tonight, before you even get there, if God's going to trust you with marriage, the body's for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. If you are married, you ought not to be abusing yourself. You ought to realize tonight the Lord is for the body, the body's for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. That phrase right there should teach you you should not be abusing your body by any means. And so we see the body in the future. And Paul said here, and he says, now the body is for, not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He makes very clear here, listen, you're living, you're a slave to fornication. That's not what God made your body for. The body's for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. He says, therefore, in verse 12, he talks about the future, and God has both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Raise what up? The body. A future resurrection. We know that our vile bodies will be changed and be made like unto his glorious body. Philippians 3.21. That's wonderful. Amen. Romans chapter 8. Hey, our body is going to go. That's the final phase of sanctification. That's the glorification of the believer. Lord's going to raise up our body. And Paul gets much in detail with this in 1 Corinthians 15. Don't you know? These bodies are going to be raised incorruptible. Don't you know these bodies can be raised immortal? If that's the case, the body's for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. Oh, just think about your future. Think about where your body's going. Think about what's going to happen to your body where God's going to turn this old corruptible body into one that's incorruptible like his. But then he talks about the fellowship. He says in verse 15, our bodies are the members of Christ. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? You're, a, you're an extension. You're a limb. You're an appendage. Shall I then make the member, take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? God forbid. Listen, behind the city of Corinth, I want you to understand this. Behind the city of Corinth was a hill. And on that hill was the temple of Aphrodite. She was the goddess of that day. Everything about Aphrodite represented sensuality and immorality. Today, you know what the temple of Aphrodite is? There's all these lewd commercials on television and women worshiping their bodies and men worshiping their bodies. That's, that's the substitution now for the temple of Aphrodite. 
And the temple of Aphrodite were these 1,000 priestesses who made their sacrifices and their service to Aphrodite. Listen, in the daytime, they did their religion. At nighttime, they practiced their profession. And as night started to fall, they started to, as the sun started to set and nighttime started to happen, these priestesses would descend into the city of Corinth. Every night, seven days a week. This is where the church of Corinth was at. Prostitution was running rampant. It was a sad day those days. A woman would be married knowing that her husband was a philanderer. Children would grow up in a home knowing that the mother and father both cheated on each other. That's what their Corinth society was about. And Paul talks about, shall I take a member of Christ and make it a member of a harlot? He's very strong about the fact that they were having relationships with prostitutes. And he said in verse 15, the man sinned against the Lord. But I want you to notice something. In verse 16, as he continues, he talks about making them the members of Harley. He's talking about a oneness. And in verse 16, what know you not that he which is joined to a harlot is one body? I'm going to tell you a little bit tonight, and when we get to chapter 7, I'll say a little bit more later. In Genesis 2.24, lays the groundwork of a very, very um, important scriptural foundation principle about marriage. For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Do you know that principle there, how important that phrase is as we get to 1 Corinthians 6? One flesh is only achieved and only allowable in marriage. That's why when we look at it, it's talking about the oneness of this relationship. That in the privilege of, of, of marital intimacy, that God brings together a bonding that cannot be enjoyed any other way between a husband and wife. That brings them together physically, emotionally, spiritually, every way. It is a precious relationship that only belongs in marriage. That's why God is very strong. Jesus is very strong in Matthew 19, which I'm going to just tell you a moment here for a second. In Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians 5, 
about this one flesh. Because God never intended marriage to result in divorce. Because in resulting to divorce, the covenant of the one flesh, and remember it's a covenant, is broken. The one who goes outside the, the barrier and outside the privilege of marriage has now broken that covenant. And in breaking that covenant, if they go and remarry, when the other spouse is not remarried, the other spouse is still alive. The Bible very specifically calls it adultery. Go read your Bible. That's why he says in 1 Timothy 3 the, that a pastor, a bishop, must be the husband of one wife. Because if anyone has to exemplify, can, is supposed to exemplify the oneness in this marriage, it needs to be a man of God, a pastor. And if he's divorced or if his spouse is divorced, and that spouse is divorced, their, that, that, their other previous spouse was still alive, it just makes it very muddy. It just violates the principle there that he must be the husband of one wife. You understand what I'm saying? And so here's what Jesus, Paul's saying here. When a man who is married had a relation with a harlot, you know what he did? He took that oneness that belonged to marriage and he brought it into to a prostitute. And here's the thing, if you read this, look what he says here. He says, uh, know ye not, verse 15, that your bodies are the members of Christ. Now notice he's using plural. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? You know what? You're not only sinning against your own body, you're sinning against your local church. That's what you're doing. That's pretty hard. The two, Genesis 2.24 principle is broken. Implicated the entire body, Christ. So Paul goes from there, notice verse 17 18 very quickly. Notice now he talks about the prevention. Verse 17, he says, he that is joined to the Lord is one spirit. He said, listen, you're a member of Christ. When you got saved, you're joined. You became one with Jesus Christ. And you know what he's saying there? You're one spirit. Now, if there's a conflict, this problem's with your spirit, not the Holy Spirit. Amen? So he's talking about this relationship we have with the Lord. He said, joined to the Lord, you're saved. So Paul's sympathizing. Now we get to verse 18. He's sympathizing with the weakness of these believers. He's not condoning their weakness, okay? He's not condoning it, because you just heard what I said. He's not condoning it, but he's sympathetic. He knows those men have weaknesses. He knows those men have had, they had proclivities in the past that have resurfaced in their heart. He knew that just like today, a man that gets saved out of pornography or gets free from that, there's that proclivity that he could go back into it again. Or a drunkard, for that matter. 
He knew that every man, that if he was out at night and he saw one of those prostitutes come down, man, that urge would come back to him again. See what he said? You know what the prevention is? Run. Run. Run fast, run hard, run away. Don't run to it, run from it, amen? Run, flee, fornication. You know what? God doesn't tell us to resist fornication. Did you know this tonight? You cannot resist it. You need to run from it. You don't resist, you run. Joseph ran from Potiphar's wife, and she was a very sensuous woman that seduced many men before Joseph. And she just saw him as another one that she would seduce to get her way. And Joseph said, shall I do such a great wickedness before God? No. Listen, Joseph, even though the Bible doesn't suggest it, I would tell you that Joseph fasted and prayed as a young man. He learned that as an individual. That was the only way he could withstand that thing. And he ran from that sin. Flee, youthful thus. You value your purity, and you should flee youthful lusts. If you want to protect your marriage, flee youthful lusts. You value your reputation, flee youthful lusts. You don't want to bring upon yourself the chasing hand of God, flee youthful lusts. Flee the urge towards flirting. Flee the trap of becoming emotionally involved. Flee from becoming a slave to your lusts. So the question is, where do I go, pastor? Well, 2 Timothy 2, verse 22 tells us. Flee youthful lusts, listen, and follow. After righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You follow that, now you run, run from it, and follow after righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord. He tells us the principle, he gives us the prevention quickly tonight, notice the priority. Don't you know? Now he brings it all together. Your body's the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you. He tells us some things about our body. Number one, your body is hallowed. H-A-L-L-O-W-E-D. It's sacred. Moms and dads, teach your kids. Their bodies are sacred. They're hollowed. The body's for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And there Paul had to tell them it's the temple of the Holy Ghost because the backdrop to them was the temple of Aphrodite. The Holy Spirit lives in you. This is his sanctuary. I mean, I don't know about you. There's something very awesome. Very, something very fearful. Something very stirring, that my body is the sanctuary of the Holy Spirit of God. And I don't want in any way to grieve the Spirit of God. 
And I don't want in any way to quench the Holy Spirit of God. And I don't want in any way to hurt the Spirit of God. And I don't want in any way to cause sorrow and grief to the Spirit of God. Listen, tonight, your body is hollow before God. Your body is His. You're not your own. You know, your biggest struggle tonight, if you can get victory in this, realizing your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. Remember the seal we talked about? The seal of the Holy Spirit of promise? You belong to God. You're his purchased possession. He paid, he bought you with the blood of Christ. Your body's hollowed. Your body says, your body is to be honorable. For you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify, give honor, magnify, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body's hollowed, your body is His, your body's be honorable. So you honor God in your body and in your spirit. Number one, through presentation. I hope tonight a good number of you who've never presented your body as a living sacrifice to God will do so tonight. I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto the Lord. Secondly, We glorify God in our body and spirit through veneration. Just studying that verse right there. All this nasty worship that goes on with these praise teams and some of these churches that are very loose. That'll change your philosophy if you get your philosophy right. Your body is to be venerating or worshiping God. Through presentation, through veneration, through separation. Are you saved or are you slave? Know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit of God. Do you need victory tonight? What do you do with your body? The body's for the Lord. The Lord is for the body. The body is a future. This vile body will be changed into His glorious body. The body deserve, is, is the body must be in fellowship. We're living immorally. We've been joined to a harlot. We've, we've taken that oneness that is so precious in marriage. We've taken that oneness, that one spirit we have with the Lord, and we've desecrated it. We've profaned it. The body's a future. The body is for fellowship. The body has some things forbidden. God said, God forbid. 
Now I'm going to tell you what Paul says later on in 2 Corinthians 6. Come out from among them, be ye separate, saith the Lord. Come out of it. Get victory in the Lord tonight. Amen? All things are lawful to me, but all things are not expedient. They're not profitable. I will, all things are lawful unto me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. You, you don't have to be a slave. You don't have to be a slave to marijuana. You don't have to be a slave to medications. You don't have to be a slave to your desires. You don't have to be a slave to hatred. You don't have to be a slave to bitterness. You don't have to be, be a slave to gossip. You don't have to be a slave to bitter speech. You don't have to be a slave to immoral behavior. You don't have to be a slave to stealing and covetousness. You can be free tonight. You can be free by the power of Christ. You've been washed. You've been sanctified. You're justified. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Tonight, the starting point is, are you washed? Are you saved? Whatever your lifestyle is, God saves sinners like you and me. And he can save you tonight. You can be born to God's family. You can, you can become an heir of God tonight. I'm going to help you with that. Christian, you say, well, I'm living pretty good. You might be, but if you have that kind of attitude, you could fall into it. Yes, you will. Some of you are graduating high school and college. You better be very careful. Some of you already got in the working world. You've already started to be like everybody in the world. The Bible says when you present your body, be not conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good, perfect, and acceptable will of God. So tonight, some need to make a presentation. Some need to pull away. All of us need to be pure and proper before God.